This week, Hero to Zero and back again, the peculiar rebirth of cloning expert Wu Suk Huang. If, if there's ever a conflict between his desire for a spectacle of some sort and the demands for scientific data, he is going to go for the spectacle. And diamonds are a physicist's best friend. You get a whole range of unique extreme properties like uh, it doesn't absorb light, uh, it is chemically inert, uh, and it has very high thermal conductivity. And it's that combination of extreme properties that we use in all the different applications. Plus how pests and diseases keep tropical forests diverse. This is The Nature Podcast for January the 23rd, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. South Korean cloning expert Wu Suk Hwang became a national hero after his lab reported the first cloned human embryonic stem cells in 2004. The advance, known as therapeutic cloning, offered the prospect of stem cells matched to any person's DNA until the claims fell apart. The findings involve serious research misconduct. That's Donald Kennedy, then editor of the journal Science, where Huang published the fraudulent research. Fraudulent research is a particularly disturbing event because it threatens an enterprise that's built on trust. Fortunately, such cases are rare, but they damage all of us. But has Huang's fraudulent past really damaged the man himself? Nature's Asia-Pacific correspondent David Sirinoski has followed Huang's story from the start. Back in 2005, he reported on the ethical problems surrounding human eggs used in Huang's research. That was among the first hints that something was amiss in the lab. In the latest issue of Nature, David gives an update on Huang, who is back in the limelight in Korea. Here's David in conversation with Nature's Ewan Calloway, first describing Huang's wilderness years after the fraud came to light. He was rumoured to have been looking for work in Thailand and in Libya. Um, I've called these places and they don't really have a record of him being there, but um, at the same time he was slowly building a lab in Korea with private funding. And uh, he had built this uh, research institute called SUAM, where he now is, and he clones cows, he clones pigs, and he clones dogs, and it's, he's very active as he was before. You went and visited him at his new, his new operation, his new laboratory. Tell us about that experience. Well, one of the really stunning things is when I went there, I was immediately taken to a, basically an observation theater where I could watch him uh, deliver a cloned puppy. And he wasn't taking interviews from me. He, he refused to speak to me and to speak to other journalists, but uh, he, he puts on the show of delivering cloned puppies for, for people, for I think whoever goes to visit him there, from what I can tell. So he, he's really still at the center of this whole thing, and yet he's kind of a, a ghostly character because he's not out talking. He has another young assistant who's doing all of the PR work for him. So for someone who, who had loved the limelight so much, it's, it's strange to see him kind of in the background like that. How has his return been received in, in Korea, where he was lauded as a hero? It's strange. He was kind of over the years, I think he's been quietly followed within South Korea. It was very controversial when he was found guilty of fraud because some people really still believed that he had some kind of great technology to deliver. So many people were very upset about that and they were happy to see him progressing. I didn't realize how 
divisive he is in Korea until I, an article that I wrote came out last week, and apparently this created quite a media buzz, claiming that Huang was um, now accepted by the research community and that he had made it back to a very respectable level as a scientist. It even affected, apparently affected the stock market and companies that had some relation to Dr. Huang uh, saw their, their stock prices rise, which I found very bizarre. Yeah. How has the scientific community actually received his return? The scientific community in, in South Korea, the scientists there who have known him for a long time, are very skeptical of, of his return. Uh, many grudgingly said, okay, he can have grants to continue his research, but um, he really shouldn't be allowed to do human research anymore, which is something he does, that Dr. Hong does hope to do. So it's really a, a, quite a mixed uh, reaction that he's gotten. But I would say uh, from the research community, uh, mostly grudgingly receptive. And uh, from the, the public at large in Korea, is very receptive. The Korean society still seems to believe that there was something in the fraudulent research that should be saved. You've been following Wong's career for a decade now, his rise, his fall, and his, his seeming rise again. Do you think he deserves a second chance? That's a very good question. I, I don't think he set out to deceive people. I think that you know, when, when the data that he didn't like came up, I, I, I think he really believed that he had what he said he achieved, and then he exaggerated results. And he had a lot of help doing that by other researchers who, on their own, also have several articles that have been retracted. So to some extent, this was a certain moment, a certain group of people who carried out this fraud. At the same time, there, there's something, I think, in, in Huang's personality. He, he really loves spectacle. He loves to have a show. When he, when he first uh, cloned cows, he supported it not with a scientific publication, but he supported it by letting the president of the country name the cow. If, if there's ever a conflict between his desire for a spectacle of some sort and the demands for scientific data, he is going to go for the spectacle. And I think that's somewhat of a, a, dangerous, um, a dangerous mindset for, for a scientist to have. Still to come, why physicists just love a sparkly diamond. And there are big waves and bad memories in the research highlights. But first... Variety is the spice of life, and rainforests are better at it than most. But why? About 40 years ago, two American scientists, Daniel Jansen and Joseph Connell, suggested that pests and diseases help to maintain the diversity of plants. By capitalising on times when their hosts are thriving, they penalise those species which become too abundant, acting like a sort of biological referee, never letting any one species become dominant. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence to support this hypothesis, but scientists haven't done a rigorous test. Enter Owen Lewis from the University of Oxford and his team. They headed out to deepest, darkest Belize to work out if Janssen and Connell were onto something. Noah Baker spoke to Owen, asking him how they went about it. We were very keen to do an experimental test. So one of the, the great ways of testing theories in science, of course, is to do manipulative experiments. So what we um, decided to do was to use pesticides, so fungicides and insecticides, 
to exclude or at least to greatly reduce the activity of different sorts of pests and diseases. So fungicides for killing off the fungal pathogens and diseases and uh, insecticides to kill off uh, insect herbivores that might be eating seeds and seedlings of the rainforest trees. So we carried out an experiment where we carefully sprayed areas of the rainforest understory, so the forest floor underneath the canopy, with these different sorts of pesticides. And then we looked to see what the effects were on plant diversity. And so what did you find? Is it, is it affecting plant diversity or did you just kill off a lot of insects and funguses for no reason? <laughs> no, we, we found some quite marked effects of using both the insecticides and the fungicides. In plots that were sprayed with the fungicide, then we found that the diversity of those seedlings was um, greatly reduced. So this suggests to us that the fungal pathogens are actually key in driving these diversity-enhancing processes. And could you say the same things for insects? Were they also maintaining this kind of diversity? No, the, the story with the insects is slightly different. So when we sprayed insecticides, we found that this did increase the survival of uh, seeds and seedlings. So we got many more seeds and seedlings surviving. Um, but it seemed to be a certain subset of the trees that were benefiting from the insecticide. But we didn't see an overall effect on the diversity of plants, the number of species that we were recording in our plots. So it seems that whereas the fungi are actually uh, acting to enhance plant diversity, the insect herbivores are having an effect on the plant community, but they're changing its composition. So they're changing the, the relative balance of numbers of different species that are observed in the forest, rather than acting to actually maintain that diversity. And what might these findings mean for efforts to conserve areas of forest and diversity in the future? I mean, one general insight, I guess, is that uh, a group of organisms that aren't normally a conventional target of conservation efforts, so fungal diseases of plants, might actually be quite uh, critical in, in maintaining the diversity of the system more widely. Because, of course, the plants are in themselves the foundation for rainforest diversity. They provide the structural habitat and then ultimately the food for the base of the food web that all the insects and the mammals and the birds ultimately depend on. So I guess one insight is, is that uh, an obscure and relatively poorly known group of organisms can be quite important in a, in, a, in a conservation context. Although it's difficult to see specific conservation actions that would help to maintain these processes. There is also some relevance in the context of climate change. So we know that as the climate changes, rainfall regimes are likely to shift in tropical rainforests. So droughts are likely to become more frequent. Some parts of the tropics will become a lot wetter. Some areas will become more drier. And because fungal pathogens transmit most effectively where it's really hot and wet, um, changes to the climate could change the strengths of some of these interactions between fungal diseases and, and the plants that they're attacking. And this ultimately could feed up to alter plant diversity. It seems almost counterintuitive to me to maintain diversity by trying to conserve pathogens. I guess for ecologists it's something that, that people have thought about for quite a long time. And the way to think about it is, is in terms, I guess, of levelling the playing fields without some sort of check on the abundance of species that are competitively dominant. 
they're going to run away, they're going to preempt the space, the light, the water and the resources um, that plants need. So by checking the abundance of abundant species and allowing less abundant ones to thrive, ultimately, yes, pests and diseases are good for diversity. Did you go out to the rainforest to do these studies and did you sort of succumb to any fungal or, or insect pathogens yourself? <laughs> yes, uh, this sort of research requires uh, people to spend quite long periods uh, actually immersed in fieldwork in the rainforest. So I think all of us succumb to some sort of tropical disease at at some point during our stay there. Uh, it's one of the occupational hazards of being a tropical ecologist. But at least it kept you diverse. <laughs> Very good. That was Owen Lewis talking to Noah Baker. And here's some more of Noah with the research highlights. A drug can help banish ingrained bad memories in mice. Traumatic events can trigger long-term fearful memories but they're difficult to treat because they leave chemical marks in the genome. Now, a US-based team has tested a drug that clears these marks. They conditioned mice to freeze in fear when they heard a loud sound. Mice given the drug and then exposed to the sound froze less frequently than undrugged mice. The drug makes it easier to replace the bad memory with a less fearful one, say the authors, because it changes the expression of genes involved in rewiring the brain. Find that paper in Cell. Tall waves are good for surfers, but bad news for coast dwellers, and they could slam into tropical coasts with increasing frequency this century, causing flooding and erosion. Waves are created when winds blow across the sea. Waves are created when winds blow across the sea, but not a lot is known about how they're affected by climate change. Now, researchers in Canada have collected data on air pressure and temperature, which drive surface winds. From this, they predicted changes in the heights of ocean waves. Chile and Mexico's Baja Peninsula could see giant waves up to three times as often by the end of this century. Other climate-linked changes, like rising sea levels, could worsen the impact. Read more in Geophysical Research Letters. The News Roundup is on its way, but first, for a feature this week, reporter Lizzie Gibney has been exploring an unusual piece of kit for scientists, diamond. Most diamonds were made millions of years ago, crushed into existence by intense heat and pressure deep within the Earth's crust. But today, scientists don't have to wait for diamond to form. Instead, they can grow it in a lab. Some of the world's purest diamonds are created here at Element 6 in Harwell, near Oxford. The machines you can hear grow the crystal layer by layer, building up diamond's super-hard carbon lattice from atoms in a mixture of superheated gases. The diamonds are ultra-pure, but they're not completely flawless. The gems are made with tiny defects within them because these imperfections turn out to bestow quantum properties on the diamonds, which researchers hope to use for everything from quantum computers to imaging devices. I spoke to Jeff Scarsbrook, Research and Development Manager at Element 6, about why diamond shows so much promise. What is it about diamond that makes it such a useful material? Well, carbon occupies a very special place in the periodic table. Uh, it, it's the lightest group four element. So its structures uh, have uh, strong covalent bonds and that basically means it's a very strong material. It has high symmetry and 
That gives you your mechanical applications, the strength of the bonds, and in the technical applications, uh, because you have both the, the, the tight lattice and the high symmetry, then you get a whole range of unique extreme properties like uh, it doesn't absorb light, uh, it is chemically inert, uh, and it has very high thermal conductivity. And it's that combination of extreme properties that we use in all the different applications. And when did people first discover that diamond could be useful in quantum computing? There was uh, work uh, starting around about 2000 when a natural diamond uh, was found uh, in Russia, uh, which they found had got some very useful properties. In particular, it had a long T2 time, uh, which represents uh, the uh, stability of a particular defect in the diamond to retain useful information. Um, subsequent to that, because there was only one of these diamonds found and uh, having uh, looked around uh, no more could be found, it obviously needed to be replaced by uh, engineered synthetic diamond and that's what we have done. Uh, and as part of our work we already could produce very high purity diamond and we have gone on to specialise producing tailored diamonds for that particular application. And what's special about this kind of diamond? As I understand it, there's a, it's a defect, but it's more than a defect, it's actually something very useful. Well that's right. Uh, the name defect tends to imply something which is bad, but actually uh, to a scientist it just means uh, something which is uh, not the regular lattice. And you can actually make a really uh, good use of defects. In this particular application, we're looking at a defect consisting of a nitrogen atom and then next to it a vacancy or missing carbon atom, uh, which has associated with an, uh, an electron, uh, and that electron can have spin up or spin down, and spin is a quantum property. And by manipulating that spin, you can get a lot of very useful effects out of the diamond. So because it is a little bit like a bar magnet, it can measure magnetic fields. And you can measure magnetic fields very sensitively, uh, both just in terms of uh, the, the, the magnitude of a field, or you can also measure with very high spatial accuracy, because of course this defect is very small in the diamond. Um, so what we have had to do is to produce a diamond which is high purity except for a select number of these defects that you want to use uh, and make sure there are no other defects around which can affect it. In particular you would, don't want other defects which have spin. And why is it so important to have really pure diamond, especially when we're talking about the quantum computing? It is this fact that other defects tend to have their own spin um, and that spin can interact with the spin that you're interested in and um, upset it. And how do you go about making this diamond? So we use a process called CVD diamond synthesis. Uh, CVD diamond is grown below atmospheric pressure. It's grown at relatively high temperatures. You have a vacuum chamber, you put gases such as hydrogen and methane in there and then you use a power source to break down those gases. We tend to use microwave, but you can use other power sources as well. And you grow the diamond layer by layer, atom by atom, onto the surface of a substrate. And in terms of the engineered diamonds that are created to have uh, the NV defects in them, um, has there been a lot more interest in recent years, a lot more demand from, from researchers around the world? Oh, absolutely. So uh, we produce uh, high purity material uh, commercially and uh, a lot of people have been buying that, but 
We also uh, produce tailored uh, samples as the uh, field develops, uh, and the demand for that has been growing and growing. And you know, to characterize it, I'd say we were doubling the quantity of diamond uh, samples we're putting out into this area uh, each year. Jeff Scarsbrook of Element 6 in Oxfordshire talking to Lizzie Gibney. Lizzie's feature on the uses of perfectly imperfect diamonds is free to read on our website, nature.com news. News now and joining me is Nature's chief news editor, David Ray. Now, um, David, last week, uh, Rosie Mestel visited the Antarctic with us in the news chat um, to talk about that mission that was stranded there, the cruise ship that got stranded and rescued. And we're visiting the Antarctic now for a different story. Take us back, first of all, to 2012. Yeah, so the proof once more that the Antarctic is no easy place to work in. But yeah, so back in 2012, a British team was working down in Antarctica in the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. It was trying to use a new technique to drill into one of the deep lakes there. Lake Ellsworth, it's called. It's a particularly hard to get to one. It's about three kilometres under the ice shelf. And they were using a new drilling technique to do that, using a, what's called a hot water drill. And they spent 10 years planning this mission. Millions of pounds were spent on it. And uh, unfortunately, it failed, mainly because of problems with the equipment. So that was in Christmas 2012. They all came back in the new year of 2013 and started figuring out what had gone wrong. And the news now is that they've, they've, they think they have figured out what went wrong and they've done a report saying what they plan to do about it. When they've been troubleshooting, I suppose, what exactly was it that went wrong with the drilling before? It was mainly to do with, I mean, essentially this hot water drill worked by pumping hot water into, into the ice and sort of you know, using that as a, as a drill instead of the sort of you know, what you might put a, a shelf up with. Um, so the difficulties were with that and keeping the water inside it from freezing up, and that's what actually happened. They had some leaks in the hose that supplied the water to the drill, and uh, and the whole hose froze inside the uh, the hole that it had bored, and obviously that meant that they could do no more. They couldn't unfreeze it, so they had to cut it and uh, and basically abandon it. And there was a lot of electrical difficulties as well that they had. So, yeah, there's a number of sort of things that conspired against them. But they would like to go back again. Are they planning to use the same technique or something a bit more standard? Because there was a Russian team who managed to get through to another of these lakes, I suppose using something more conventional. That's exactly it. They did. They used a kerosene fuel to do normal drill, to drill it like you would do sort of if you went ore mining or something. And also that the teams that, uh, Russian teams, for example, are drilling at quite a less smaller distance, so they're not going as far down. Uh, but a US team, actually more sort of promisingly for, for the British team, did use a hot water drill to dig to a far shallower lake or, or less deep lake. So the, the British team now think that having that as an example, that this is possible to do, the technology is not fundamentally flawed and that there's no reason why they can't go back with uh, a better team of a support team, especially electrical engineers is one thing they say they need, and uh, and a few other adjustments, obviously, in, in how they'll use the equipment. Less leaky hose. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah, less leaky hose would be a good start for them, I think. And what's the, what's the roadmap? I mean, how long is it going to take them to com- perhaps persuade their funders to part with a bit more cash and, and get a trip going again? Yeah, as I said, a long time. I think the technology they need to develop this new drill will be a while in the making. Uh, I think it's about five years at the moment, so it, it's no mean feat to go and do it. So, yes, it's a few years away. Okie doke. Well, another thing that's probably a few years away, again, no mean feat, uh, is trying to sequester carbon in rocks, basically. I mean, there are lots of plans underway to sequester carbon in lots of places. Tell us about this uh, slightly newer plan. Well, it sounds oh so simple, doesn't it? You can just store carbon in, in sort of rocks and cliff sides everywhere around the world. But that is essentially this geoengineering plan that leads um, a small group of 
of like-minded experts, I suppose, has come together and suggested uh, something called enhanced weathering, which, uh, I mean, locks weather anyway in nature. They're sort of worn down by the water and, and the air around them. And that process naturally locks up carbon in certain types of locks, such as one called olivine, which is a fairly abundant, common magnesium silicate lock. Um, so, yeah, these guys are saying, well, why not speed that process up and, um, and use it to store huge amounts of carbon? And on paper, the idea is actually quite strong. How much carbon would this kind of thing lock away? Yeah, well, actually, one of the more conservative estimates, and this was done by someone who's quite sceptical about this, uh, suggested that 30% of man-made carbon dioxide emissions at 1990 levels could be sequestered if you dumped uh, and wait for five gigatons of uh, olivine crushed up into the sea, uh, where it's even more enhanced weathering in the sea because of the sort of access to water and the movement of the the waves and things. And five gigatons is roughly equivalent to two-thirds of the amount of coal that we pull out of the earth each year. So anyone who's ever driven past a slag heap will have a good idea of just how much olivine that will need to be dumped in the sea. Is there that much olivine uh, existing in the earth? (laughs) Good question. Yeah, I think there is. Uh, I think that almost certainly there is. And it's kind of used as a fertiliser at the moment for because it has you know these these sort of properties. So it is uh, sold and and flown on on fields and, and in plants and things as well. Uh, so yeah, I think that supply part's not not the issue. What is possibly the issue is the amount of carbon that might be uh, released from just grinding up this lock to make it small enough to to, to you know suitable for this use. Yeah, because unless unless it's sitting around on the surface everywhere you go. Uh, you're going to have to dig it up, and then, as you say, it can't. It's no use in uh, granules. It's got to be ground up, I suppose, finer than that. That's exactly it. And I think the, the process to do that, you know, grinding up rocks, is not something that can be done easily. Enormous carbon emissions, there's enormous carbon emissions of transporting it then, and of course of flowing it in the sea. And uh, I think the other danger is <clears throat> it's likely to change the pH of the waters where it is flowing into, and uh, that of course could have impact on the local marine ecosystem. Uh, yeah, and, and be a threat to, potentially to, to animals. So for the community surveying a, a number of efforts, I suppose, to sequester carbon, how realistic does this actually look as a strategy? How did the community feel about this? Is it just this one group of experts who like it? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes geoengineers are looked at as being a bit wacky and then coming up with these amazing ideas that never really seem to take off. But, I mean, I think one of the quotes from the uh, Jens Hartmann, who's uh, involved and set up this that this group, so they had a meeting last week for the first time in Hamburg, so it said, well, now finally we're a community and things are happening. We're like-minded, we're all thinking the same thing. And they were essentially working out how to standardise what they're going to do you know, in the future, sort of making sure they're using, all using the same olivine rock, for example, in their experiments. So I think it's, it's fledgling, certainly, but they, they do have quite a future. And uh, they're not making any plans, they're sort of figuring out what they're going to do. But it's a long way from, from happening, I think, but... I mean, investment, of course, is another difficulty, but it's certainly one of the more promising methods of geoengineering that are currently under discussion. Okay, well, thank you, David, for stopping by. Uh, You know where to go, nature.com slash news for all those stories and much more. Follow at Nature News on Twitter for regular updates. And don't forget, for updates and general chit-chat from Team Pod, follow at Nature Podcast. Next week, is the hunt for the elusive one-poled magnet over? I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. 